We're going to be continuing our series in Genesis. If you'd like to turn there in your Bibles or turn there on your phone. Genesis chapter 3, we're going to be looking at the pronouncements of judgment that God gives the serpent and Adam and Eve this morning. Before we get to that, I want to share a show that I enjoyed watching a few years ago. It seems like my kids have grown enough that they've, they've almost outgrown it. But I, I would say that for me, it's, it's still highly entertaining. It was on a streaming service that you could watch, and there was a group of people. This was sponsored by Wired Magazine. And one of the things they did was they hired a group of people who would recreate some of the most iconic scenes from Star Wars. And they would have leg very, very complex Lego scenes going on, and they would have some of the biggest displays of the battleships and different things like that. They would take thousands and thousands and thousands of pieces to put together, of which they would time them and video them to show that sometimes it would take them 12 hours to build something, sometimes it would take them 72 hours. And they put 10 videos together like this of different scenes in Star Wars, and they would take the biggest, most complex Lego, and they would lift it 15 feet in the air, and they would, or they would video it slow motion as it came falling to the ground and watch it just explode in pieces as it hit. Because there's always a scene in Star Wars where something blew up. So you're like, watch it blow up on Star Wars and watch it blow up in slow motion with Legos. And at the end of every single video, after you're sitting there going, why? Why would you do this? It was such a cool Lego. It would say, build time, 72 hours. Destruction time, 0.12 seconds. And you're just sitting there with, with your jaw dropped open going, why all this destruction? And yet at the same time, you're so drawn to it. I say that humorously because in a very serious way, when we look at Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we see the creation of something that's so beautiful and harmonious and complex and amazing and life-giving. And one person falls, and all of creation is shattered. And if you're watching it in Scripture, in Genesis 3, your, your jaw just drops to say, Adam, why would you do that? Why would you rebel and cause something so beautiful to come crashing down. One philosopher said it like this. He says, this world fractures everyone's heart sometime, somehow, some way, to one degree or another. And I'd say this morning on a more serious note, you could even personalize it and say this. The world fractures your heart sometime, somehow, some way, to one degree or another. Uh, again, Genesis was written to Israel as they were out in the desert with Moses. And Moses is conveying to them uh, this scripture from God himself saying, do you, do you want to know why the world is the way it is? Why it's so broken and fallen and disordered and disruptive and painful? This passage explains why. Let's stand for the reading of God's word, Genesis chapter 3. Verses 14 to the end of the chapter. Let's give our hearts attention to the reading of God's word. This is after they have eaten and rebelled. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, 
Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire, your desire shall be for your husband. He shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his, for his wife Eve garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the, east end, at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The reading of God's word which he's given to you because he loves you and he wants you to know him. Let's pray. Father, this is a hard passage, and this is a great passage. A passage filled with sorrow and grief, and a passage also filled with hope and joy. Father, would you show us that even here in this passage, you are giving us a glimpse of the rescue operation that you would put forward in your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to see him even through this passage, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to talk this morning about two things as we navigate somewhat of my, what we might call the rapids of this passage. And the first one is this. Because of sin, suffering is a significant part of your story. Because of sin, suffering is a significant part of your story. And secondly, because of grace, hope can be an even deeper part of your story. But I want to begin first with because of sin, suffering is a significant part of your story. In some ways, that's what this passage is communicating to the Israelites in the wilderness. Why has suffering been so much a part of my family's story in Egypt? Why is suffering such a significant part of my story here in the wilderness, Moses? What do you have to say? And so Moses is giving them the background of all that's happened in order that this world was shattered so that they could understand their experience in the wilderness. And it doesn't just help Israel understand back then. It helps us understand our experience right now. And I, I don't want to be Job's counselors this morning. What I do not mean is because of your sin in particular, you suffer all the time. I do mean that because of Adam's sin in particular, we all suffer. 
really Romans chapter 5, verses 12 and following is Paul's commentary on this section of Scripture. And one of the many insightful things Paul says is this in Romans chapter 5, verse 16. He says, The judgment following one transgression brought condemnation. So this passage is first and foremost about the judgment that was not only on Adam, but now on all creation because of what Adam had done. And it has brought untold suffering into this world. This is one of those passages where as you really enter into it, it's hard not to weep understanding all of the pain that has been caused by chapter 3 of Genesis. And so there's a way in which we come really trembling understanding the depth of what has happened here. But let me mention a few ways that because of sin, suffering is a significant part of your story. And the first one is this. It's the suffering of conflict. The suffering of conflict. We see this here. God begins by cursing the serpent. You can see this in verse 14. It says, because you've done this, cursed are you. He's talking to the snake, the serpent, above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. To eat dust in the Old Testament was a sign of humiliated defeat. But there will still be spiritual conflict. You can see this in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. There's spiritual conflict going on. You know, and it's interesting, too, that it's God himself sovereignly saying, I will put the enmity there, the hatred, the animosity, because you are becoming too affectionate towards evil and sin. But God, in his mercy, places animosity between the serpent and the woman and the serpent's seed and the woman's seed. That's why Paul later on in Ephesians chapter 6 will say that that our battle, our fight is not against flesh and blood, but we battle against principalities and powers. There is spiritual conflict that all of us endure to one extent or degree of another. That's why he says that there will be enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. You see this immediately following Genesis chapter 4 with Cain and Abel, and then all the death that's displayed in Genesis chapter 5, and then chapter 6 and 7, you have Lamech who's going on a spree of vengeance and hatred. And there's always conflict between God's people and others, principalities and powers. There's spiritual conflict. You'll also notice that there's relational conflict. In this passage, you can see this in verse 16. Towards the end of the passage, it says, Your desire shall be for your husband. Now he's talking to Eve, and he shall rule over you. Now, this is a difficult uh, sentence to interpret in Hebrew. Uh, some translate it when it says, your, your desire shall be for your husband is simply a, a desire to be with and to be loved by her husband, Adam. And it says that he responds by harshly ruling over her, demanding that he get his way. Or it could also mean, according to Genesis chapter 4-7, where it says that sin seeks to to dominate you, that same word being used here, that the, the woman in some way might seek to dominate or manipulate the relationship 
So it could either be a simple desire to be with her husband, loved by her husband, or a desire to dominate. The husband also responds in ways that are not helpful. Generally what it's saying that we know for sure is there's going to be conflict. Adam and Eve, there was once so much harmony and peace and joy in your relationship. And now there will be conflict and tension and wrestling with one another and the ups and downs of what they will experience every day in their lives. And again, all of us experience that here in this room if we're married. And all of us still, there's implications not just for the marriage relationship, but all relationships. That there's tension, there's conflict that's going on. I had the privilege yesterday to sit with the neighbor of one of our members who had just lost her husband this week. And one of the things I asked her, she was talking about her husband, and it was so sweet, she called her husband her hero, which I thought was so a gift. I told Liz, I'm like, I really want you to be able to say that when, when my time comes. I hope she can and say it honestly and genuinely. But I said, how, how did you do it for 51 years, married like that? And she goes, lots of laughter and lots and lots of forgiveness. There's spiritual conflict. There's relational conflict that's now coming into the picture. And you can also see vocational conflict. You can see this in verse 17 when God's speaking to Adam. It said, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. In other words, it's saying when you enter into your job and your vocation, your calling, whatever it is you do to put bread on the table, you will be met with opposition. There will be conflict. There will be tension. There will be days when you come home and go, I can't believe what happened today at work. You've all experienced that. Because of sin, suffering is a significant part of your story and part of that is conflict. Another part of it is pain. You know, if you just read this passage out loud on your own, maybe privately, you'll notice just kind of audibly, you'll start hearing the same thing over and over. Pain. 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 All as a consequence because of Adam's sin. You can see this in verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbirth. Here Adam and Eve were, were supposed to be fruitful and multiply, and now pain is being bought into that picture as children come into the world. In pain you shall bring forth children. The pain of marital conflict that comes in. On those moments where you're at each other for one reason or another, a moment of conflict and pain or a season of conflict and pain in your relationship. It's also the pain of exhaustion in verse 19 in your job. I'm sure none of you have ever had days like that in what you do. Where you just come home and you are worn to the bone because you're so exhausted mentally, physically. It's just hard. And Moses, God through Moses, is explaining this is the reason why our world is the way it is. Conflict, pain, and death. Because of sin, we suffer significant parts 
our, we suffer in our story, and one of, that ma- one of the ways of suffering is death. You can see this as it moves forward. God threatened this, if you remember. The day you shall eat of it, you shall die. You'll notice in verse 19, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Death is the sentence on this world because of sin. Paul says in Romans chapter 5 that, that death entered into the world because of one man. And all of us, in some measure, has experienced death. The death of someone you love, the death of someone you work with, the death of someone in your family, the death of a friend. And that's why it's so important to remember and to understand that death itself is an enemy to be hated. It's unnatural. We can't look at death and say, well, that's just a natural part of things. It's unnatural. It was not according to God's original design. We were intended to have life and have life abundantly, and yet death enters in. That's why when Jesus experiences death in his ministry, when he sees his friend Lazarus dead, do you remember how he responds? He weeps. His friend should not be dead. And he's angry. The strongest words for anger in the New Testament are used of Jesus when he sees his friend dead. I remember being with somebody after he lost a good friend, and he said, Clay, I'm so sorry. I'm I'm sorry to confess this to you, but I'm just so angry that this would happen to my friend. He's 32 years old. Why would God take him? I said, "It's, it's good to be angry at death. You don't have to apologize at that. But death is the sentence of sin. And so also is distance from God. You can see this towards the end when God exiles them away from Eden in verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, let, now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. So here's the compassion of the judgment. Boy, if he were to take the tree of life, he would live forever in this state of death and decay, and disease. And so it says in verse 23, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east end of the garden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Exile, east of Eden, distant. Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 2, far off from God. The greatest loss And these chapters is not the loss of paradise, as wonderful as that is. Circumstances where everything is perfect and wonderful and beautiful and harmonious. The greatest loss is the presence of God. Their maker, your maker, to see him face to face, to experience the abundant life that he's supposed to give us every day and yet exiled away from that living God because of sin. Suffering is a significant part of your story. Suffering of conflict. Suffering of pain. The suffering of death. And distance from God. Let me mention a few things by way of application. The first one is this. This passage is an explanation of why your world is the way it is. Why, when I turn on the news, is it all bad news? 
Why are there things in my life that make me weep and cry if I really was to engage them genuinely in that moment? Why? And Romans 5 would say, as Paul looks at this passage, it's because death entered into this world through one man and death reigned. It's what the reign of death looks like. Conflict, pain, death, and distance from God. It's an explanation. Listen, Eastern religions... Look at suffering that's part of your story and say, it's just an illusion. It's not real. So try not to become too attached to anyone or anything, and then you'll be okay. And I would say all of us in our hearts know intuitively that that's wrong. That that our suffering that we go through is not an illusion. The suffering that we know others go through is not an illusion. And that the answer is not to detach our affections from anyone or anything. We were made to care deeply for one another. Nor is the answer what I would call naturalistic materialism that takes God out of the picture and says that everything that here is really just an accident and suffering and death is simply a means to weed out the weak. That's why Friedrich Nietzsche, who was a philosopher, many of you have heard that name before, he heard that over 200,000 people were wiped out, died in one earthquake, and he celebrated. He rejoiced because that many weak people were wiped out of the gene pool. And all of us, I think, know intuitively that is not right. But Scripture comes in and says, suffering is not an illusion. Suffering is not simply to weed out the weak from the strong to keep the gene pool going. Suffering is real and painful, and it's a consequence of real rebellion in Genesis chapter 3. It's an explanation. It also tempers our expectations of what we'll experience in this world. There is no one, there is no thing, there is nowhere that is functioning perfectly as intended. And oh, how I forget that every time we go on vacation. Right? Deep in my soul, even though I might not be acknowledging it in my mind, I'm like, this is going to be the perfect vacation. We are going to go to Isle of Palms in South Carolina. It is not going to be affected by the fall. The waiters and waitresses are going to be amazing. The food is going to be delicious. The kids are going to be obedient. The water is going to be just the right temperature. The sand is going to be perfect when we make our awesome sandcastle. The vehicle is going to stay in one piece all the way down and then flat tires, and rain the whole time, and overcooked food. You know, who knows what it is? But this passage has listened. Every square inch and every person is infected with this. There's darkness outside of us. There's depravity touching every square inch inside of us. And there's death all around. It's not just an explanation It helps you understand what expectations should be like for you in this world. And it also commends a certain kind of experience. The Bible does not condemn grief and sorrow. The Bible commends it. The Bible commends us looking around at what's happening. And a godly response is to grieve. And the godly response is to cry and to sorrow. We don't spend too much time often talking about this. We often talk about Jesus dying for our sins on a cross, which we're going to talk about here in just a moment. 
But Isaiah 53 also says that he bore our sorrows. That he bore our griefs. In other words, our experience, your experience in this world, if you really feel the weight of how fallen it is, will mean lots of tears needing lots of Kleenex. Because of Genesis 3 and the rebellion that's here. The Bible does not condemn grief and sorrow, it commends it. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, wrote this to one of his parishioners who's going through a difficult time. He says this, This is a weeping world. Sin has filled it with thorns and briars, with crosses and calamities. It is a great hospital, resounding with groans in every quarter. I know every one of you has been touched by this fall. Conflict, pain, death, and distance. But here's the wonderful thing. That's not where this passage ends. It's not simply because of sin that suffering is a significant part of your story. But because of grace, hope can be an even deeper part of your story. Listen, Adam and Eve rebelled because Satan convinced them of something of the character and heart of God, that he's harsh, that he's oppressive, that he's restrictive, that he doesn't care about our well-being. And God is going to use these comments in Genesis 3 to prove otherwise. To really do what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, to say where sin abounded, and oh how it is abounded in Genesis chapter 3, grace will abound all the more. And I love it how Paul says in Romans chapter 8, it says that in And as he's reflecting again on Genesis 3, he says that God subjected creation to futility in hope. In hope that his plan would move forward of redemption. Listen, hope is the expectation that a certain desire that we have will be fulfilled. That's what hope is. Often we put our hopes on the hopes of possibility. Like the hopes that tomorrow because of the rain there will be no more pollen in the air or on my car. The hopes that as a Midwesterner, it would snow more in the South than it does. The hopes that my Colts one day will return to their football days of glory. All of those are the hopes of maybe. But the hopes put forward in Genesis 3 and in the rest of Scripture are the hopes of certainty. They can be banked on. It will happen. One of the first hopes that this story shows here in Genesis chapter 3 is the hope of ongoing life. You notice that even though there is pain in childbirth, there will continue to be childbirth. There will continue to be future generations. History is not coming to an end. There's the hope of ongoing life. There's the hope of meaningful work. It will be hard. There will be tension and frustration. But there will be meaningful work. The call to to keep and to tend and to extend the garden continues to say work meaningfully. Do what God has called you to do. Contribute to the needs of this world through which God provides for you and others your daily bread. The hope of ongoing life, the hope of meaningful work, the hope of love, even though there will be tension between husband and wife, a man will still meet a woman and fall in love with her and desire to be committed to her and, and her to him and have moments and experiences and seasons of deep love so that the 
The woman I heard yesterday at the passing of her husband, when I said, who is this guy? She said, he was my hero. Which is wonderful. They can still say that. There's still relationships that happen, love that will occur. But perhaps the most wonderful thing that we can hope in in this passage is the promise in verse 15. Throughout all of church history, we've called it the first gospel promise. Excuse me, yeah, verse 15 towards the end. It says, He shall bruise your head. This is the seed of the woman. And you shall bruise his heel. Seed could mean collectively, the generations that come after. Or the seed of the woman could mean one person, individually. And what God is promising is saying, and even though it's not clear vision right now, we're not seeing 2020, it's kind of foggy, but God is promising to do something somewhere through someone to undo everything that Adam has done. And the promise is there. This is the beginning of the story, capital S, that will make sense of all the stories in Scripture. What is God doing through the story of Abraham, through the story of Moses, through the story of David, through the story of Laura, and so many others in Scripture? He's bringing out his Messiah. The Messiah will come. That the biggest problem is not not the loss of paradise, but the loss of God's presence. The Savior will restore both. And Paul says the transgression of one man brought death. The free gift of the other man, Jesus Christ, will bring life to all those who trust in him. You know, it's interesting that right when Jesus starts his ministry, just as Adam was driven out into the wilderness east of Eden, one of the first things the Holy Spirit does for Jesus in his ministry after he's baptized is drive him out into the wilderness where he's tempted by Satan for 40 days and nights. And does Jesus fail? No. He stays faithful. Everywhere where Adam failed, Jesus stays faithful. Not only does he succeed when he's tempted, he will bear the curse. What was placed on Jesus' head on the cross? A crown of thorns. He's saying, you know that curse that you deserve because of your sin. I am such a good and gracious God. You're so tempted to believe the lie that I don't care about you, that you can't trust my word when I make a promise, that you can't hope in what I say because I won't be faithful. But I'll send my son for you. He'll wear a crown of thorns for you. And he'll bear the curse for you. And that enemy that all of us have, death, He'll conquer it. That's why I will stand in front of a grave tomorrow with sorrow and joy because death has been defeated. Jesus defeated death in his resurrection. Adam and Eve didn't deserve this promise. They didn't deserve this hope, and yet God still gives it because he is faithful, because his word can be trusted. He is gracious. He is merciful. So here's a few things, again, explanation. This is why good things still happen to sinful people. It explains why. There's still marriage. There's still love. There's still food on our table. There's still so many things because God is a merciful God. It explains why our unfaithfulness 
never cancels out the faithfulness of God. It also tempers our expectations. At any moment, we could ask, what is God doing in the world? And we could answer that he is always, even if not clearly, advancing his gospel agenda. Our expectations is that God is still working. He's still moving. He's still showing mercy. And scripture says that he delights to show mercy. And our experience is one not only of grief and sorrow, but faith. You can see how Adam responds in faith to God's promises in verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve. Saying, God, God's going to cause future generations to come from my wife. I'll name her Eve, mother of the living, as it continues to explain. Not only faith, but also hope. To say, I trust that what God says is true, and he will bring to pass what he promises. And joy in knowing that he is that kind of God. Let me just conclude with this. You can imagine if you had busted up those Legos that were about nine to 10,000 pieces that took days to put together. I think for most of us parents, I've even done this. It's kind of like, I could try to put that back together or we'll throw it in a box and really probably never play with those again and we'll just get a new one and put that one together. God takes all the pieces of this broken world and because of the gospel, he puts them back together. If the narrow lens of the gospel is Jesus dies for our sins, and even this morning he invites you to put your trust in him, the broad angle lens of the gospel is he will restore all things. And the point is that even though grief and sorrow makes, makes us need a lot of Kleenex for a lot of tears, God promises that one day he will put Kleenex out of business. Let me read Revelation 21, and I'll conclude simply by reading this. This is the promise God makes to any and all who trust in his son, Jesus Christ. This is where you will live for eternity. This is what you will possess for eternity. That even though because of sin, suffering is a significant part of your story, and because of grace, hope can be a significant part, an even deeper part of your story. One day, suffering won't be a part of your story at all. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Listen to this. He not someone else, God himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Let's pray. Father, all of us 